0: Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Beyond the Neon, the podcast that looks past the nostalgia to get beneath the skin of 1980s pop culture. If you're a regular listener to the show, then you'll know that it doesn't usually open with an introduction like this, but I wanted to just add a quick comment in as this is very much a one off episode, so I thought it'd be worth providing a little context. With the Beyond the Neon project, which consists of not just a podcast but an upcoming book, I do try to make sure that the show isn't just a bunch of my own opinions but is backed by social political and cultural history as well as academic theory and while i have been a guest lecturer on media marketing and content development as well as film and pop culture uh, at manchester metropolitan university for a number of years now i was keen to try and use beyond the neon to try other forms of more professionally academic work So, when the opportunity arose earlier this year to take part in an academic symposium, which is essentially a conference where professors and researchers are invited to submit a paper on a chosen field and then deliver it as a speech, uh, I decided to go for it. The Gothic 1980s symposium took place on Saturday 8th of June this year, the very day I was returning from a family holiday in Lake Garda, and I jumped straight into the car from the airport and arrived just in time to deliver my paper during the afternoon session so while this is tonally a little more dry and academic than your typical beyond the neon episode i thought the paper might be of interest so i've re-recorded it and cut in some clips and scenes to illustrate my points and make it feel hopefully slightly less of an academic presentation As I say, if you're a new listener to the show, this might not be the best place to start, but as a piece of bonus content, I hope you do get something out of it. A new, regular, documentary-style episode of Beyond the Neon is on the way, and will be with you within a couple of weeks of this one being released. Uh, I've had a pretty busy couple of months, and have been sort of working on two or three different episodes and one of them is kind of coming together now so hopefully the other two will follow quite quickly after that. Uh, But in the meantime this is my first ever academic paper entitled Why Are We Wearing Bras on Our Heads? Occult Perceptions in the Home Video Era. (laughs) Shake, shake Sonora, shake your body liner. Shake, shake, shake Sonora, shake it all the time. Work, 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 Sonora, work your body liner. Work, work, work,
1: Sonora, work it all the time. My girl's name is Sonora, I tell you friends, I adore her. And when she dances, oh brother, she's a hurricane in
0: all kinds of weather. Jump in the line, rock and time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line. Rock and time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line. A common use of the Gothic in contemporary American cinema is the idea of the reclusive Gothic teen, someone who must exist on or outside the periphery of high school popularity or even their own family, usually depicted as awkward, troubled or misunderstood they may dress in black, have an affinity for heavy metal, or even a knowledge or interest in the occult.
1: Are you the guys hiding out in the attic? We're
0: ghosts!
1: What do you look like under there?
0: Aren't
2: you scared?
1: I'm not scared of sheets. Are you gross under there? Are you Night of the Living Dead under there? Like all bloody veins and pus?
2: Night of the what?
1: Living Dead, it's a movie. You know, if I had seen a ghost at your age, I would have been scared out of my wits. You're not gross. Why are you wearing sheets? We're
2: practicing. You can see us without the sheets. Of course I can see you. Well, how is it that you see us and nobody else can? Well, I read through that
1: handbook for the recently deceased. It says, live people ignore the strange and unusual. I myself am strange and unusual.
0: The impact of the teen gothic in these situations may be limited to providing contrast or mystical information to a more visually acceptable lead, but from time to time they not only activate the narrative with occult ability, they actually resolve it by enduring its horrific or comedic consequences. The home video era, which began in the late 1970s but proliferated in the 1980s, was a place where this kind of character would thrive. It was a period where demand for film content was high and where other major studios, who were worried about what home video meant for their theatrical business model, left a gap in the market that smaller filmmakers and distributors were more than willing to fill. Directors like Stuart Gordon, Brian Usner and Jim Wynorski came to the fore with films like Dolls, Society and Chopping Mall, which blended slasher and body horror with comedy, while producers like Charles Band and Lloyd Kaufman built studios and distribution empires on the back of movies like Terror Vision and Class of Newcombe High. Raised on a diet of 1950s paranoia, 1960s counterculture, as well as the films of Roger Corman, Alfred Hitchcock and Abbott and Costello, it's perhaps no surprise that this new wave of filmmakers found comfort in a combination of high-concept horror and black comedy. But these influences also go some way towards explaining their inherent concern about supernatural, technological or scientifically enhanced threat. Concerns that were ever-present in narratives that make use of occult symbolism and ritual. Well, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have a double-header. <laughs> <laughs> After the first shunting,
1: we'll have that special treat we've been hearing so much about. A wonderful specimen in his prime. Nurtured by Jim and Nan
2: in their very own home. (laughs) Keep your eye on Blanchard, Billy Boy, because you're next.
0: whether in the pursuit of pleasure profit or popularity movies like witchboard from beyond and the gate all feature characters that indulge in a cult performance to invite chaos but use its challenges to develop the physical or emotional tools to overcome and return it to its rightful place and restore order in the narrative. And it's my assertion that these characters who activate, learn from and gain control over the occult are a much more effective, active, gothic presence than those who simply embody the basic aesthetic. In Witchboard, for example, a group of young people who dabble with a Ouija board at a party learn that experimentation with the occult leads to death, or at best, demonic possession.
2: You haven't figured it out yet, have you, James? You're the portal, not Linda. You're the one I opened. You're the one I terrorized by torturing Linda and by killing your friends. Linda's mine as long as you live.
1: Bullshit. Bullshit. You
0: tried to kill me. No, just to
2: scare you.
0: In From Beyond, Dr. Catherine McMichaels discovers that through technology, she can open the door to a demonic dimension that will enhance her mind and body, but that ultimately will claim not just her credibility, but her sanity.
2: I'm sorry. I really thought that I could control it. It's changing us, Doc, all of us, and not for the better. I was wrong to turn on the resonator with other subjects present. It's clear now that only one person should run the experiment. This ain't an experiment. It's suicide. The presence of other subjects causes dangerous distractions. Now, I can stand right at the master switch and maintain control of that resonator, but I must do it myself.
1: I know this behaviour. I've seen it in the streets. You may be a scientist, lady, but right now you're acting like a junkie.
0: just take him and leave! And in The Gate, a group of teens who accidentally summon demons who used to rule the universe to take over the world find out that, contrary to the satanic panic messages of the day, Heavy metal lyrics might actually be the thing that can protect us from the devil.
2: They're called sacrifices. and my dad brought it from Europe, and it's got all this stuff in it. See, these guys were like, really serious about demonology, and it's like they're trying to warn you. See, these guys knew. They wrote their own music, but they got their lyrics from this thing called the Dark Book. That's like the Bible for demons. And here's the creepy part. This is their only album. And after they made it, they all died in a plane crash. And look at this. Demon Lord. Terry, come on. Wait a minute. Uh, see, the lyrics in the album tell you how to summon the demons. Now, well, there's this certain time when these constellations are aligned, when you can open the gate and let the old gods, those are the demons, come through. Well, I checked, and it's like now. Terry, but. What? Terry, this is a record album. But, you see, there are these songs that tell you about the whole ritual for opening the gate. We did it.
0: The close relationship between horror and comedy that can be seen in films like this is, of course, well documented. But in the biology of horror, gothic literature and film, Jack Morgan suggests that these things often derive from the same place. Despite the commonplace wisdom that comedy and tragedy are kindred, Morgan states, it is arguable that instead... It is traces of horror that are more often bound up with comedy, and the two may well have been part of an original single weave. He adds that the opportunity for horror, as being inherent to the very framework of comedy, suggests that, implicit in the comic rhythm, is the lurking possibility of disaster, as well as life's day-to-day corrosive effect upon us.
2: You know, it's not a bad idea. What? Making a girl. Actually making a girl. This is Wyatt and Gary. I give her Womdigis mammary glance. Something's about to change their world. Something out of
1: this world. She's alive! Alive! What would you little maniacs like to do first? It's all in the name of science. Weird science. If you want to be a party animal, you have to learn to live in the jungle. Not us.
2: Not here. No way. She is turning their lives. Trust me for once, will you? What is going on? Gary, I don't know. I don't know, man. Their minds.
1: <laughs> and their house. Upside down. It's seriously affecting your sex life. <laughs> it's completely unnatural. Do you realize it's snowing in my room? Totally unbelievable.
2: Please, What?
1: Definitely weird. Hi,
2: dudes.
1: They went from zeros to heroes in one fantastic weekend. I'm so good. Universal Pictures presents a John Hughes film, Weird
0: Science. It's
2: purely sexual.
0: One film released theatrically in 1985, which found a much bigger audience on home video in the years that followed, is Weird Science. Written and directed by John Hughes, The film follows Gary and Wyatt, two horny suburban teams who dream of partying with the cool kids, but lack the required social credibility to do so. And it's while lamenting this situation, and watching a specially colourised version of 1931's Frankenstein on television, that Gary's inspired to ask the question, what if they were able to create their own woman? Someone who would educate them on how to talk to girls, and help them unlock the secret to high school popularity. Okay, look, you know, you always talking about how you can simulate all that stuff in your computer, you know? What's the difference? Why can't we
2: simulate a girl? I don't know. I, I guess I could, but why? It's two dimensional on the screen. It's, it's not flesh and blood, Gary. Well, I know that, but, you know, we can, we can use it. Why we can ask it questions. We can, we can put it in real life sexual situations and see how it reacts. You're like, we're sick to manage shit. You'd love it
0: initially. Gary sells the Endeavour as a simulation of sorts, an exercise or experiment that will allow Wyatt to test the power of his new home computer. But as Gary's Frankensteinian hunger to create something real takes hold, and it looks like technology might not be enough, candles are lit, a small altar is built, and ceremonial bras are adorned. And it's at this point that the sky turns a thunderous blood red, and their creation, Lisa, is born.
2: So did you steal this car? Oh, I didn't steal the car. How'd you get it?
1: I can get anything I want. And right now, I want a party. Party? Yeah. And you better think up a name for me, too. What name do you want? You guys created me. You think of a name for me. How about Lisa? Why Lisa?
2: Why not? He used to like a girl named Lisa. Oh, yeah? Old girlfriend? She kicked him in the nuts. Will you shut up? Look, well, Gary, it wasn't your fault. All you said was hello to Get the quiet. Shut up!
1: Hey, guys. I like Lisa. That'll do just fine. OK, you guys ready to rock? Ready.
2: Ready.
0: <laughs> Initially introduced as fetishized object, Lisa is soon revealed to be the mentor archetype of Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, but later completes her arc when established as a kind of reverse Oedipal mother figure. And while it's undoubtedly played for comedy, Morgan's lurking possibility of disaster lives in Lisa's educational chaos, which threatens to unravel Gary and Wyatt's unsatisfying but simple suburban life with every new lesson. Yeah, well, I, uh, I, I think it's time to go. You ready? Where do you think you're going? To a movie?
2: Movie party is what it is, folks. We're going to a movie party.
1: It's such a little liar. No, I've whipped up this nasty little soiree over at his friend Wyatt's house.
2: Soiree what?
1: Soiree, honey, I think that means um party. Party. You know, there's going to be sex, drugs, rock and roll, chips, dips, chains, whips. You know, your basic high school orgy type of thing. I mean, no, I'm not talking candle wax on the nipples or witchcraft or anything like that. No, 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 just a couple of hundred kids running around in their underwear, acting like complete animals.
2: All right,
0: goddammit, I've heard enough. Gary, you get to your room. Yes, sir.
1: No, it's okay, just sit here, I'll take care of this.
0: Curly, you get the hell out
2: of here before I throw you out.
1: Don't fret me, Owl. You're out of shape, I'll kick your ass.
0: As a literal construct of the occult performance, Lisa is imbued with technologically enhanced occult power, essentially making her a witch with a lesson plan, or a succubus with a syllabus if you prefer. Her teaching programme begins with new uniforms, sharp black suits to replace garish preppy blazers, personalised sports cars, one black, one red, and harsh lessons for meddling family members. These lessons include wiping Gary's parents' memories...
1: Didn't you think Gary was acting a little strangely this evening?
0: Gary? Who's Gary? ...putting Wyatt's grandparents into a state of suspended animation...
1: Are they alright? They're fine. In fact, they're better than fine. They're not ageing anymore. See? They're smiling.
0: ...and turning his manipulative brother Chet into a living shit pile. I'm sorry, Wyatt. I'm sorry for being such a
2: shit to you all these years. And, gee, well, uh, I want you to know that I love you.
0: And while all these actions are, once again, used in the service of comedy, in a more traditionally gothic context, they could just as easily be used to denote horror. Lisa's curriculum culminates with one huge house party, where Gary and Wyatt secretly succumb to the temptation of being able to impress their high school nemesis Ian and Max, with their newfound ability to create life. But when this action fails, due to their inability to properly observe the ritual element correctly, Lisa is prompted to seek out a more practical lesson that pushes them towards resolution. In fact, it's here that she directly challenges her creators on the pace of their learning, by asking,
1: When are you going to learn people like you for what you are, not for what you can give them?
0: Now, around 56 minutes into the film, it would be unusual for the two leads to have made this kind of breakthrough. But what Lisa's question does is confirm that she is no longer a fetish object, someone whose beauty and magical intervention simply invites chaos. She is to be taken seriously as the active, wise, gothic mentor. In addition, it tells us that Gary and Wyatt's journey is incomplete, that the heroes must dig deeper and apply the experience gained from their time with Lisa to pass one final test.
1: Those guys really need some self-confidence. A challenge. Something that'll bring out their inner strength and courage. I'm so bloody clever.
0: Through their potential for naivety, innocence, and mindless hedonism, the heroes of Weird Science act as an efficient vehicle for comedy and horror, but by activating the narrative through occult performance, they openly invite being educated by it, while creating a deep and meaningful link with gothic fantasy that goes way beyond the usual aesthetic. Through music and fashion, the gothic enjoys representation in a host of 1980s films, usually to convey a character's social status or otherness. But through occult performance, Gary and Wyatt are given agency and win gothic credibility. through the consequences of their actions in this more active gothic space they're able to discover much more about their identity their purpose their human limitations than they ever would by simply dressing for the part of gothic teen outsider in the same year weird science was released writer director john hughes also introduced audiences to the breakfast club arguably his most celebrated work the film explores otherness through a selection of high school stereotypes
2: dear mr bernard we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. And what we did was wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. What do you care? When you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, the most convenient definitions. You see us as a brain, an athlete, Basket case, princess, and a criminal. Correct? That's the way we saw each other at 7 o'clock this
0: morning. We were brainwashed. In sharing their fears, insecurities, and the social and familial pressures that each face, the group comes to learn that they aren't all that different but only one of them is forced to acknowledge her otherness as something that needs to be changed. The film's basket case, Alison, dresses in black and chooses not to speak during the first act. Typically accepted as the film's gothic character, she's also acknowledged as such in Catherine Spooner's post-millennial gothic, comedy romance and the rise of the happy gothic. Like Lydia in Beetlejuice, Spooner says Alison's appearance allows her to sidestep conventional gender identities, and signal her resistance to conventional ways of being a girl.
1: So, what's your poison?
2: What do you drink? Okay, forget I asked.
1: Vodka. Vodka.
2: When do you drink vodka? Whenever. A lot?
0: Tons. But unlike Lydia, who engages with gothic performance, Alison's otherness is purely aesthetic and entirely passive. In fact, it's only when she willingly trades her identity at the end of the film, with a makeover from the princess character Claire, that she has any real impact on the story.
2: Don't stick that in my eye. I'm not sticking just close that no wait, just close go like that. Good. <coughs> you know, you really do look a lot better without all that black shit on your eyes. Hey. Like that black looks a lot better.
0: Her physical transformation, in fact, is what leads her to an immediate romantic relationship with the athlete. And in this moment, Allison commits the ultimate act of passivity. She ceases to be defined by all the things she is, or was, and accepts an identity based on what she is not. The otherness initially used to represent her social status, personality, and beliefs is exposed as transient and dismissible. And unlike the rest of the group, she's encouraged to reject her otherness to learn the lesson of performing femininity just to complete her journey. And it's in cases like this where Spooner's definitions, which primarily focused on aesthetics, do gothic representation a certain disservice. It may be easy to define a character like Alison by aesthetic alone, but if that's all she has to affect the narrative, the only path to resolution may lie in taking it away. However, Spooner does acknowledge the ineffectuality of characters like Alison in the context of Lucy Armit's discussion on the goth girl child, as part of an ascent into womanhood. The price the goth girl pays for finding acceptance among friends or a community is usually the relinquishing of her goth look, she says. Once she has assimilated, it appears there is no longer need for her to signal her difference through dress.
1: What happened to you? Why? Claire
2: did it. What's wrong? No, it's wrong. It's just...
1: It's just so different. I can see your face.
2: Is that good or bad? It's
0: good. Unlike The Breakfast Club, which uses an elusive gothic aesthetic to initially suggest otherness... Word Science uses gothic performance to give agency to its characters so the lessons can be actively given and learned. They may not fit the traditional gothic mode, but when Gary and Wyatt request those lessons by conducting a technologically enhanced seance, they've engaged with the occult in a way that progresses the narrative, making them arguably a much more active gothic than Alison ever is in The Breakfast Club. Let me
2: tell you something, you don't come into my friend's house with your faggot friends Driving your motorbikes all over his floors, breaking windows, making a mess, stinking up the place, and believe me, you do stink. And here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna let go of the girls, and you're gonna apologize to all these people, and you're gonna get on your bikes and pedal your ugly asses out of here. <laughs> so now, uh, we're gentlemen, so I'm gonna give you a choice. Yeah, you can leave in peace. Or you can stay and die.
0: Of course, while weird science is primarily a comedy, the same thing can be seen in other films, which lean more towards the horrific side of Morgan's original single weave. Like many of its 1980s contemporaries, such as A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Evil Dead and Child's Play, The Ghoulies series pushes further into comedy with each subsequent sequel. But in each of the first three Ghoulies films, a cult threat is used to deliver a variety of lessons to their teenage protagonists. As one of a slew of mini-monster movies that included Gremlins and Critters, to name just a few, Ghoulies took the trend of tiny evil creatures versus young lead and placed it in a more traditionally gothic setting. While Gremlins and Critters were mythical and extraterrestrial, respectively, the Ghoulies were a mischievous evil force that could only be brought into our reality via occult ritual. Oh Sir
2: God, I conjure thee that thou come before this circle immediately and agree to obey my orders. Come, I order thee, in the name of the most holy Trinity, I order thee to manifest thyself at once, without injury to me or any other in this room.
0: The first film opens with a failed sacrificial killing, a magical talisman, and a man who returns to his familial home, a fairly typical gothic abandoned mansion, with a group of friends who decide to have a seance for fun. That occult activity sparks a chain of events that leads to more rituals, chanting, satanic diagrams, and ultimately the summoning of the titular demons. The lead character, Jonathan, learns that once this box of monstrous chaos is opened, it's very difficult to close. That the consequences of his meddling will not only be the death of most of his friends, but the resurrection of a secret and long-buried patriarchal evil. The questions he has at the start of the film about his family history, which prompts his initial interest in a cult play, are ultimately answered in a lesson about how some things are best left in the past. You, you killed, you killed
2: Yes, I suppose I did. But it was you I really wanted, Jonathan. You were to resurrect me. And what should have happened twenty five years ago will happen now.
0: Unlike its 18 rated predecessor, 1988's Ghoulies 2 has a 15 rating in the UK, yet somehow manages to double down on the presence of malevolent demonic threat. It opens with a priest on the run from devil worshippers, who have apparently once again brought the creatures into the world via a cult ritual. Unable to destroy them before he himself is killed, the Ghoulies escape and head for the grounds of a travelling carnival, which is under threat of closure from its corporate owners. One attraction in particular, a family-run house of horrors by the name of Satan's Den, is expected to face the axe first, as its Universal Monsters Inspires exhibits no longer seem to be of interest to young carnival visitors, or as its owner, the alcoholic magician Uncle Ned, points out The new sophisticated carnival audience doesn't seem to find our horrors horrible enough anymore. When the ghoulies discover the attraction, its mock gothic aesthetic provides an ideal home, and their antics end up turning around its fortunes. As the profits grow, though, so too does the chaos, until it gets completely out of control and almost destroys the carnival and its customers. Expulsion of demons through demonic intercession. It's better work. Make a
2: pentagram on the floor. What's a pentagram? It's one of these. This looks like Latin. This is your territory. Gigantus. Demonium. Exorito. Come on, this.
0: In Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go To College, the lines between horror and comedy become even more blurred. As the title suggests, for this adventure, the mischievous Ghoulies find themselves a new home on a college campus, where they get caught up in the madness of... Wraiths week.
2: Race of spirit,
1: grotesque in form, rudely summoned to be born. Wake to this mage's call. Anubis, Io, copyball Water bubbles. Vessel breaks. The earthly
2: foul in turmoil shakes. Traverse gateway. Come in haste through porcelain place of earthly
1: waste. Argo spirits, spirit. I now command you to appear.
2: What a duck.
0: Having been summoned from an ancient toilet by a frustrated professor to help end the unruly behaviour of his students, the ghoulies end up showing its lead, Skip Carter, himself one of the most prolific prankers on campus, what chaos really is. Ultimately, it seems the lessons being passed on by our gothic antagonist this time around, as they are condemned back to hell via an ancient lavatory, is that while toilet humour is fun, at some point you have to grow up and stop fooling around if you want to learn anything.
2: I am the book! The book is mine! I, I am the a- 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 <laughs> book! I am staying in college! You are gone!
0: In all three of the Ghoulies films, the overriding message is that magic is real and can be a hell of a lot of fun, but that fun can be deadly when it gets out of control. And in the broader context of all the films I've mentioned here, this message also illustrates how comedic and horrific pleasure can be made permissible where it's supported by a framework of education and improvement, which allow it to just avoid dissolving into meaningless hedonism. Whether it's for popularity, erotic pleasure, scientific discovery, financial stability, or just plain fun, the occult promises access to whatever the heart desires. Using gothic symbolism, language and ritual as its currency, it gives narrative agency to characters who seek to fix their imperfect lives, allowing them to learn what it is necessary to learn to complete their emotional journey. The cost may be high, and the lesson not always what it seems, but through chaos and consequence, the active gothic assures narrative completion for themselves, for the people around them, and for the mentors who will inevitably return to the gothic other place from which they came. And not only does this narrative bookend provide a more satisfying resolution, it creates a sacred relationship between gothic student and mentor that is forever bound by occult ritual. Um, Lisa, we have to have a talk with you.
1: What's on your mind?
2: I really don't know how to say this to you.
1: You guys found girlfriends, right? Fell in love with the two girls. They fell in love with you. That's all I ever wanted for you. You're not hurt? Yeah, sure, I'm hurt. But I wouldn't change it. I'm really just getting off seeing you two guys straightened out.